My dad owned his own small business. He, he had an excavating business, and so I sort of grew up in the family business. And uh, now, at my age, when I think back upon that, I realize that were some, there were some things that I learned uh, through that experience growing up you know, in the family business uh, that are still with me today. Um, I, I was thinking about a few of these things this week. Uh, sometimes in the family business, things were really, really tight. And uh, work was a little scarce, and I can remember times when my dad would say, you know, I've got to go scare up some work. Uh, kind of the list, you know, we got through the list and so forth. And then other times, things were really great, and uh, we were more busy and giving work away than we could do ourselves. And so um, I kind of learned that, you know what, you can't control the future. There's a lot of things in life you can't control, and one of the things you cannot control is the future. And I sort of learned that, uh, I think, in that business. Uh, I learned also that um, sometimes decisions that we have to make are agonizing. I can remember my uh, dad just agonizing over whether or not to buy a new machine, which would be very expensive, or to patch up what we had and make it last another year, right? And so we'd go back and forth and the pros and cons, and, and uh, I can remember talking about it you know, around the dinner table on many occasions. I think I learned, too, in that family business that sometimes you can count on people and sometimes you can't. I learned that. Uh, but I also learned that other people needed to always be able to count on you if you wanted to stay in business, right? Sometimes you can count on people, sometimes you can't. But other people need to be able uh, to count on you. What you say, you need to follow through on. You need to be able to count on you. Um, Another thing I learned, I think, by working with my dad was how to stay God first in front of some really foul-mouthed construction-type guys. Um, these guys can be pretty crude, you know, and, and uh, I was always able to watch my dad and how he navigated uh, some of those conversations. Uh, I learned about generosity from uh, being in the family business. Uh, we were always helping different people. You know, we had trucks, and our trucks were four-wheel drive. And so uh, we were always bringing somebody someplace. Uh, in the wintertime, we were snow plowing elderly people's driveways. Uh, every once in a while, there'd be somebody who needed to go to the doctor, and they couldn't get through because of the snow. Uh, we also had tools, and we could fix people's cars for them and, and so forth, and especially people at church who had problems and didn't have a lot of money and so forth. Uh, we were always trying to help who we could. And then I think I also learned an awful lot about trusting God uh, in the mix of all of that. Most of the work that Dad did uh, ended as soon as a good frost got into the ground. And when the ground got too hard to dig anymore, then we were done. And so uh, we had to save money uh, in the summertime. And then in the fall, I remember, we always made this kind of annual trip up to New York State someplace. I have no idea where we went. But we went up to New York State uh, to a slaughterhouse, and we bought, you know, a, like a quarter of a cow or a half a cow and, and brought it all back, all this meat, put it in the freezer, and uh, that's how we were going to get through the winter. And uh, I can remember, you know, from time to time, my mother would uh, go down there and, and grab a roast or a couple of steaks or something to give away to somebody, and uh, Dad would say, you know, that has to last us all winter, and Mom would say something like, oh, you know, we've got plenty, and and so forth. And then we'd just wait for it to snow, uh, because when it would snow, then we could plow and we could make some money. Um, and so I learned a lot about trusting uh, God. And I think, um, you know, kind of like farmers, um, we were trusting, you know, like farmers trust God to make the crops grow. 
we were trusting God to make it snow, right? We'd talk about it every once in a while and, and uh, laugh about it. And every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, a check would show up from people who didn't pay over the summer. It would be totally unexpected, you know. And it would, it would seem to me, as a kid anyway, that it always came at exactly the time that we needed it the most. You know, like, like you ever feel like this? Like God would lead us right to the edge but never over the cliff. Isn't that kind of like he does sometimes? It's like he waits till we're out of our own resources and we can't really help ourselves. And and then he speaks or then he acts. And then all of a sudden you're kind of tuned in to listen and and to hear. And so um, every once in a while that would happen. And I, I think I learned that the real issue behind generosity, like we've been talking about so much, is the issue of trust. Um. I think people would be more generous with their five T's, right, if they trusted God more that he would come through when, when they were empty, uh, that God would manage our time, that I could give some time away uh, in order to serve God, and I would still be able to have enough time to do what I needed to do if I were to put God first, that, that God could manage my um, touch, and that if I was willing to get involved in people's lives and willing to get involved in the messes that usually come when you get involved with, with people, that God would make a way for me to still manage my own stuff, uh, even though uh, I was doing what he asked me to do. And so uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that the real issue behind generosity for many of us is, is the issue of trust. If I could just trust God to do what he said, I could be way more generous than perhaps you know, I find myself doing. And so or at least I could get to the next level. And trust, of course, is a theme that runs through the whole Bible, right? I mean, trust is a really big theme. It's all through the Bible. And so I want to pose the question this morning, you know, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Uh, maybe a better way to put the question is how much do you trust God? Do you trust God in these five T's enough to get to the next level? In, you know, pick one of those T's that you think God is calling you to trust him more. And do you trust him enough to kind of get to the next level from wherever you're at Uh, just to take a step in God's direction. I think we probably don't need any more insights on living generously with the five T's, uh, but what we do need is enough trust, right, to get to to the next level. We were made to be generous. We were made to be like God, and God is generous. And I want to suggest to you that when we actually are generous and when we move to that next level, uh, we feel God's pleasure. Have you ever just kind of taken a risk and said, you know, I think God is calling me to do X, and so I'm going to do it, and I do it, and then sense the pleasure, you know, that comes from God. And not only do we sense pleasure when we live generously uh, and when we count on God's love and that we can trust him, but I think it brings pleasure to God. I think God is pleased when we, as his children, whom he dearly loves, trust him enough to take the next step. And uh, to go forward. And so trust, you know, I think is our gift back to God for God's provision to us. If you were to stop and think a minute and just do a little inventory on your life or make a life map, you know, of the way that your life is intersected with God over however many years you've known him. And just think about all of his provision. And you were to say, you know, I, 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 need, to, I need to trust God. Look at how faithful he's been to me over the years. Sometimes he's led me right to the edge. But you know what? He's always come through. I'm still here. Right? And so and when you look at that, when, when we get to that next level or take that next step of trust, it's like a gift that we give to God. Uh, we trust in his love for us. And like little children, right, uh, we can depend upon him. When Jesus was here in Matthew chapter 18, 
uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, hey, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember this in Matthew chapter 18. Um, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to himself a child, he put the child in the midst of his disciples. And here's what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, listen, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Never. Unless you understand the relationship of God as our Father who totally loves us and respond to him like a child, you'll never get into the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is it that children have that adults struggle to get? Trust. Children trust. Children start out trusting, right? Children are, are trusting, but unwavering trust is rare in adults. Uh, even unwavering trust in God. It takes courage. It takes courage to trust God in the face of some of the things that happen to us as we grow up. Uh, in the face of failure, when something happens and we fail or we feel you know, like we failed, um, it's hard then to trust God. Like, where are you? How come you let this happen, Right? It's hard to trust God in the face of rejection. Maybe you've been rejected along the way uh, by parents or by friends or by a spouse. or you know, uh, It's hard to trust God in the face of loneliness or in the face of depression. You know, uh, Think about all the different... It's hard to trust God in the face of loss. God, where were you when my child died? How could you let this happen? How can I trust you? You know, and uh, when, when we start to think like that, we plant seeds of distrust, and it begins to emerge. And uh, can we really trust God and his love for us in both the good times and the bad times? And I want to suggest to you that the essence of what it means to be a Christian can be reduced to that one word, trust. Trust. That we can trust God no matter what. Childlike surrender in trusting our Heavenly Father. Uh, a lot of us grew up, you know, on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? You remember this? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in every way, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your life. He'll direct your path. Trust in God, but don't trust in yourself. You know, kids understand that. Kids are kind of helpless, and they have to depend and trust on their parents. As we get older, we think that, you know, uh, we don't need to trust as much as those kids. But I want to suggest, you know, trust is not a fringe issue in the Christian life. Trust is at the core, right? Trust is not, you know, an optional kind of issue. Uh, you might remember uh, Job, the, uh, many people think, the oldest book in the Bible. And uh, in Job, Job says, you know, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even Jesus wrestled with trust. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to go to the cross, he says to his father, right? You know, if there's any way that this cup could pass for me, please. I don't want to do this, you know. But then on the cross as he's dying and in agony, he's like, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. That's what he's saying. I trust you. I trust you in spite of the fact that I'm here hanging on the cross. And so... I want to suggest, too, that the issue of um, uh, faith, when we talk about faith, is, is not just you know, agreeing with God's truth, um, but it's trusting what we agree with. I want to suggest that um, you know, we, we need faith, we need truth for our heads, 
Uh, but trust is a matter of the heart. We need truth for our heads. I don't want to belittle truth at all. We need the truth for our heads. But uh, somebody has said, I think wisely, that the longest distance in the entire world is the 12 inches between your head and your heart. The longest distance in the world is the 12 inches between your head and your heart, right? So agreeing with God's truth in our heads is one thing, but trusting what we agree with or trusting God's word or trusting God's promises, that's another thing, and that's a matter of the heart. And I think it's so significant that we think about trust because you know, to live with integrity, to live with, without internal conflict, if you're going to say you know, that God exists with your head, if you're going to say, I believe God exists in your head, then I don't think you can say that for very long without saying, well, if God exists, then I'm going to trust him and saying that from my heart so that my head and heart are in congruence with one another so that there's uh, a symmetry going on. Uh, I'm going to trust him because he exists. I'm going to trust God's love for me. I'm going to trust his word to me. I'm going to trust his promises to me. And whenever we do that, uh, whenever we move from skepticism or mistrust to trust, it's life-changing. It's radically life-changing. Like one of the things that happens is uh, self-acceptance. So many people are down on themselves. But if you can believe that God loves you, all of a sudden that becomes the foundation for your love for yourself or your understanding of yourself. And self-acceptance becomes a reality on the basis of trust. I think worry, things like worry begin to dissipate. Uh, Guilt fades. Shame melts away. Um, Pretense goes away. Uh, I can be who God made me to be. The sufficiency of God's love in Jesus' work on the cross is power-filled And when we trust him and when we trust the work that Jesus did uh, and believe that Jesus uh, did what he did um, and and said what he said, uh, then um, we realize that Jesus came to give us life and to give it abundantly. And that life can be had through uh, trusting him. Uh, One of the more memorable stories in the Bible, and there's many stories about the trust of God, I think one of the more memorable ones is about a guy by the name of Elijah in the Old Testament. In uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, we, we start to pick up on his story. Um, in Elijah's day, you know, back in the Old Testament, there was a king that was really bad news. Uh, his name was Ahab. And uh, we read about him in, in 1 Kings chapter 16. And uh, this guy Ahab, he was really bad news, but, you know, he lasted as the king in Israel for 22 years. And uh, when you read about him, I also, you know, I also think, you know, aren't we glad that our presidents only have eight years and then we're done and we can, you know, you know. Uh, anyway, um, in First Kings chapter 16, uh, in verse 30, look at this guy. Uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before. Did evil in the sight of God more than all the kings who were before him. This guy was really bad news. Okay, and uh, verse uh, 31, um, as if it uh, had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He, uh, he married somebody for political reasons in order to establish peace with Phoenicia, which was to the north um, he took uh, the, the king's daughter and married her. 
And not only that, and then he went and worshipped and served her God. And, uh, and then in verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Uh, this guy, he really ticked God off. And, uh, you know, he married this woman, uh, Jezebel, um, so that the first lady in Israel, all right, was a Baal worshiper. And she was so devoted to Baal that she converted her husband, right, to Baal worship. And uh, he went along. And, and it's so important who you marry, right? I mean, it's kind of a side thing here. But uh, Baal was a, a fertility god. And um, Jezebel believed that Baal was responsible for the product of the crops. Um, Baal was responsible uh, for the vats of olive oil overflowing. Uh, Baal was responsible for the flow of wine and for the fruit to come on the uh, apple trees and so forth. And so she's so devoted, she converts her husband and he builds an altar uh, uh, for uh, Baal, uh, verse 32, um, in response to his worship of her. And then, verse 33, Ahab made an Asherah. And uh, there was a, a, a goddess, a female uh, god of fertility, who was the god of uh, fertility, of uh, love and, uh, and war. And um, this was, these two used to come together, Baal and Ashtoreth. And uh, Ashtoreth, uh, you know, we read about Ashtoreth poles, you know, and, and that are made. And uh, Jezebel uh, really did a tune on Ahab. And um, we go all the way back to Solomon, and we see that Solomon, you know, when he started to move away from the Lord, he did it by uh, having a bunch of wives from foreign nations that God had forbid. And then all these foreign wives convinced him, and one of them was Baal, who came from Sidon. And, um, you know, traces all the way back to uh, Baal getting introduced into Israel in that way. But um, she gets so, uh, Jezebel here gets so intense about all of this, she's going to eliminate the competition. And in chapter 18 and verse 13, uh, we read how she uh, goes and kills uh, the prophet, prophets of Israel. Has it not been told, my Lord, uh, uh, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men in the Lord's, uh, of the Lord's prophets by fifties and fed them in the cave with bread and water and and so forth. Skip down to uh, verse 19. Therefore, uh, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. She's got 850 prophets on her side that they summoned to Mount Carmel, if you're familiar with the story. And there's this great showdown you know, of, uh, between God and Baal. Uh, but Baal worship became normal in Israel. And so God was really uh, frustrated with Ahab and so um, Elijah is a prophet, right? He's a man of God, and he's watching all this happen, and finally he just has enough. And so look what he does. In chapter 17 and verse 1, Elijah goes to Ahab. Now, God must have spoken to Elijah ahead of time, but here's what we have in the Bible. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe, uh, in Gilead, said to Ahab. So Elijah, Elijah goes to Ahab, right? And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He's like, you want to lead the people to worship Baal. You think that Baal is responsible for the prosperity that we are experiencing in Israel. He says, I'm going to call your bluff. I'm going to expose the phoniness of Baal. And it's not going to rain for years, for years, okay? There's going to be a famine. 
And, uh, you know, you got to love the prophets, right? They just go right up to the king and just say, you know, your, your, your number's up, pal. It's over. It's not going to rain. We're going to expose that you're worshiping this Baal is phony. You're leading all of Israel in the wrong direction. As the true God of Israel lives, there will be no more moisture until I say so. No dew overnight, no rain coming from the clouds, uh, nothing. The crops are going to dry up. The animals are going to die. The people are going to get dehydrated and, and sick. And uh, it's going to be a natural disaster. I mean, it's just a bold, that's what the prophets are all about, right? A bold statement from God through the prophet to this bad king. And so then God comes to Elijah, right? And he says, Elijah, get out of Dodge, man. Get out of Dodge. Look what it says, second verse. Uh, After he says this to Ahab, um, um, verse 3 says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Get out of Dodge. You better get out of town. Jezebel's going to come and lop your head off. So I've got a place for you. I've got a plan. I want you to go over to the east side of Jordan, and um, I want you to camp out by this little brook, uh, Cherith, and uh, I want you to hide there. And so Elijah becomes a fugitive, right, and uh, hides for his life. The only problem is on the east side of the Jordan, there's absolutely nothing. I mean, there's no stop and shop. There's no Mickey D's. There's no anything. There's just this little brook of water. And, uh, but God is saying, you know what, trust me. Trust me. Trust my word. And uh, put yourself in Elijah's shoes and just ask yourself, you know, um, I, I don't know. Am I going to do this? Um, so then look what, he, look what God's plan is. He says, um, verse 4 says, you're going to drink from the brook, and uh, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. <laughs> Raven catering I've hired, right? And they'll take care of you. Ravens. And so uh, I think about Elijah in this situation, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if Elijah, like, second-guessed, I wonder if he said, is that really the voice of God telling me to do this? I wonder if Elijah got some of his friends together and said, hey, you know, this is what I think God wants me to do. What do you guys think? And what would you say? Every once in a while, somebody will come to me and they'll say, you know, I think this is what God is asking me to do. What do you think? Well, suppose somebody came to you and they said, you know, I think God is asking me to go out in the desert and there's this little stream out there and just stay there for years. Years. What would you say? I think I might be tempted to say, well, you know, get a U-Haul and take some food with you or something. You know? I wonder if Elijah did that. But uh, look at verse 5. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's trust. That's what trust is. Trust is doing what God said. It's not just agreeing with what God said. Trust is doing what God said. And it really didn't matter to Elijah what anybody else thought. It really didn't matter. Once he was convinced that this is what God said, he said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And uh, he just got out of Dodge. He, uh, you know, and I want to suggest that's the essence of trust, that we do or that we act on what God says. Uh, whatever Elijah's fears were, whatever his doubts were, whatever anybody says, he trusts God to lead him into an uncertain future. And by the way, your future is uncertain. You have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Do you trust God to lead you in the future? Do you take him at his word, do what he says, and trust that he uh, will provide for you in the future? And so um, God delivers. Um, Elijah went and lived by the brook of Cherith that's east of the Jordan. 
And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It worked. And so here's Elijah. He's at this little brook and so forth, and, and uh, the ravens are feeding him. I think the New Testament reiteration of this uh, for us uh, who are New Testament people might be in a place, there's a number of places, but uh, just for example, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus comes and uh, he's talking here and he talks to the people that are gathered together, listen to what Jesus says to us, right, in New Testament era. Therefore, I tell you, look, don't be anxious about your life. Chill out. Don't be anxious. Don't be uptight about your life, about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body, what you're going to put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they are? And besides, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to their lifespan? Why is there all this anxiety about stuff in life? Are we trying to extend our lives? You know, skip on down to uh, uh, verse 32. Um, For the Gentiles, the non-Christians, the people without God in their life, seek all of these things. That's what their life is all about. Their whole life is wrapped up in all of that stuff. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. But listen, your heavenly Father knows that you need all that. He knows you need to eat. He He knows you need to drink. He knows... You know, and so trust them. Look, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Let that be the focus of your life. Go after what God's after. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, doing the right thing, right? And all this other stuff will be added to your life. Do I trust you? Can I trust that you'll actually come through for me? Verse 34, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that the truth? Maybe an understatement. <laughs> right? One day at a time, right? We, we talk about it. We sing about it and so on. Trust is an anxiety buster. <laughs> if you trust God, the, the more you trust God and your trust in God goes up, the down comes your anxiety. Isn't that Right? And so then you think, you know what, if I were to trust God and trust his love, let's say I do trust God and I do take some steps in his direction, uh, then I get to thinking, you know what, now everything in my life's going to work out great. Now all of a sudden, if I can take that next step, you know, and I get in this cycle of generosity with God, uh, I'll just be able to, you know, kick back and everything will be just perfect, right? Wrong. As soon as you get to one level of trust, God's going to move you to the next level of trust. This is a lifelong process of growing and maturing trust. It's never really done. And so back in Elijah's story, look at this. What happens, you know, the ravens come and so forth, and he's drinking from the brook. So he's there. Verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up. Oh, shoot. Now what? God didn't say anything about that when he told me to go over here. Now all of a sudden... The brook that God said I could count on is dry because there was no rain in the land. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, God, do you know the brook is dry? Getting thirsty. You know, can you imagine the brook just sort of drying up day by day, you know, a little bit less, a little bit less. Then it's just a puddle and you're drinking from the puddle and it's kind of stagnant now, the water. And and, uh, all of a sudden it's, it's just gone. Now what? 
Does God even know that the brook ran dry? You ever feel, you know, like God leads you right to the edge before he speaks or before he acts? And, um, you know, the, the, the end of ourselves has to be about uh, in place before we're trusting, before we're going to move to that next level of trust. I think sometimes God reduces us to the place where, you know, we have no reserves left. We can't do anything. And uh, you ever think like, you know, God, do you remember me? Do you care about me? I mean, I always believe that, but now I'm in this situation, and it's hard for me to trust you. It's hard for me to believe that, you know, you know what's going on. I'm out of water. I'm out of gas. I'm out of ideas. I'm out of a job. I'm out of friends. My health ran out. What are you out of? And can I trust God when I run out of uh, whatever it is that I'm counting on to make my life work? I'm out of strength, whatever. And then God speaks. And so the next verse says, um, uh, then, right, after all of that, after the brook dries up, then the word of the Lord comes to me. Then God speaks. Then in a way that he can hear. And so what does God say? Well, arise and go to Zarephath. Well, time out. Zarephath? God, you want me to go to Zarephath? Look at this. Um, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. You want me to go to Zarephath? You want me to go live and dwell in Zarephath, in Sidon? Um, wait a minute. Chapter 16, verse 31. Um, Ahab, the king, as if it hadn't been bad enough for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, King of the Sidonians, God, you want me to go back to Jezebel's neighborhood and live there? Zarephath? Seriously? What if she comes home for Thanksgiving and sees me? She's going to kill me. Don't you understand? She's out for my neck, right? And you want me to stay there? And so he says, all right, I trust you, right? Look at this. Um, the second part of this verse, 9b, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm like, ah, oh, finally, things are looking up. There's going to be somebody waiting there for me. A widow has been commanded by God. Uh, you know, uh, to be honest, God, I was really getting tired of the ravens. I mean, you know that their favorite food is roadkill, right? And so, you know? So I'm thinking, all right, a widow. I'm, if I were him, I would start thinking, you know what? This, this, things are looking up, you know. I, I didn't want to say anything about the ravens, you know. But you know what? Uh, this is going to be good. And so I start thinking about this widow. And I think, you know what? She's going to take care of me. I bet she's loaded. She's probably rich. Right? Maybe she's gorgeous. And maybe we can become friends. I've been out here at this brook for a long time. You know, and I start fantasizing about who this widow might be and and no doubt she's well healed and she's living large because she's gonna take me in and she's gonna feed me and ah uh, this is finally looking good you know and so he's kind of encouraged so the next verse says so he arose and he went to Zarephath and when he came to the gate of the city behold a widow was there gathering sticks he's like ah, just like God said I trusted him I'm here at Zarephath. Zarephath was close to the Mediterranean Sea. If I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, all right, you know, finally tonight I'm going to have a fish dinner. 
maybe lobster bisque and some shrimp cocktail and you know because Zarephath is close to the Mediterranean so he goes there and um, you know uh, he sees this widow and so you know by this time I'm thinking after the trip and so forth he's dying of thirst right and uh, he calls to her um, second part of verse 10 a widow was there gathering sticks so he calls to her and he says bring me a little water in a vessel so I can have a drink right And uh, as she was going to bring it, she goes to go get him a drink of water. He calls to her and he says, and can you bring me, you know, a morsel of bread in your hand? Something to eat, something to go along with the water. You know, and that seems to put this widow over the edge. All right. So now look at this. Verse 12, she responds to him and she says, you know, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. I'm preparing to starve to death. I don't know where you came from, Elijah, but you know what? Uh, there's a famine here. There's been no rain for a long time. Nobody has anything here. And you're asking me to make you a piece of bread. And I'm about to make my last piece of bread and eat it with my son and then starve to death and die, right? Now, if I'm Elijah in a situation, right, I'm like, I got the wrong widow. <laughs> I think I got the wrong widow. I start looking around for another widow, you know, who maybe isn't gathering sticks. But I'm not Elijah, and Elijah's not me, uh, thank goodness. And Elijah's experienced in this because he's been by the brook, and he knows what God is like, and sometimes God brings us right to the edge And um, so Elijah says to this woman, um, in verse uh, 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. Now, the opposite of trust is fear. Fear and trust are opposite concepts, right? Remember, I've said on numerous occasions that the, the, the command that's repeated the most in the Bible is fear not. Somebody counted the 365 of them, like one for every day. And here's one of them, right? He says to this lady, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. Now, if you're this lady, what are you thinking? Right? If you're this widow, what are you thinking? But that's his response, fear not. Um, and then he goes on and uh, he, says in the, he says to her, don't fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son now if you're that lady what are you thinking what are you thinking you know are you like you know um are you like excited about this are you like you know is he being totally selfish what's with this guy didn't he hear what I said? Is he mocking what I just told him? I'm about to die. I'm, I'm on my last, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm on my last meal. And the truth of the matter, how do you feel? I mean, what would you say if somebody said to you, well, look, you know, you're at the end of your rope of, of one of these five things, but just do this for me first and then take care of your own stuff. Now, a lot of us, I think, would say, Elijah, you know, you're being awful selfish here. Right? But the truth is, what Elijah's doing is, is saying, you know, if you'll be generous, you won't die, you'll live. What Elijah's saying is, if you put God first, hope will come back into your life. You see, Elijah's bringing God's word 
which is going to fill her with hope instead of despair. And I think, you know, how true is that about us? That God has entrusted his word to us and that when we meet people and and encounter uh, different situations in people's lives, if we would be bold enough to say the truth and explain what God says and put him first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will provide for you. If we trusted what God said. Sometimes when I talk about tithing, you know, uh, I'll meet people and they'll, you know, they'll be in... uh, bad shape financially, maybe in a lot of debt and credit cards and all the rest of it. And I say, have you ever thought about tithing? You know, and, and on one level, I'm thinking this person's going to think I'm just trying to deal with the church's finances. Haven't you heard where I'm at? I'm so broke that I can't, you know, afford to pay my bills kind of thing. And then I try to explain, like, you know, do you think that if you really did put God first, God would get involved in your situation and help you get out of debt? And build margin into your life. If you would ask God by putting him first. Seek first his kingdom. And he would get involved in your life. Like he gets involved in this widow's life. And provides more flour and more oil. And life comes into this widow and her son. Where they were only facing death. And so sometimes it might be hard for us to even speak the truth. Because we feel like you know the other person is going to reject us. The other person is going to think we're mocking them. The other person is going to think we're just manipulating them or controlling them. Or you know, trying to take advantage of their situation or something like that. And we keep our mouths shut. What a mistake. Because what we have to give to people is life. And, and uh, Elijah comes and, and he says, look, don't fear. Don't worry. You're not going to die. You know, Dewey said, but first make me a little cake, bring it to me, and then afterwards make something for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, if the God of Israel would get involved in my life, this lady's maybe thinking, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. I got a word from God for you. (laughs) You can trust him. He'll put more flour in your jar and he'll put some oil in your flask and And you'll be able to make more bread and so forth. Well, look at this. Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. She trusted the word of God through Elijah and did what he said. And uh, when that happened, um, notice what what happens. Uh, Verse 16. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. What a great, everybody's trusting God here and God's coming through in desperate times, in tough times. In spite of the king uh, who was evil more than any other king before him and in spite of everything else and in spite of the dire circumstances, uh, everybody's able to trust God here. Um, and, And how is it that this lady was able to do that? How is it that instead of having that reaction that would be so normal, she was able to do what Elijah said? Well, if you go back to verse 9, you remember um, God says to Elijah, Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Like God went ahead and already spoke to that lady. So she maybe was even looking for a prophet to come along. And God had prepared her. You know, um, it's not like Elijah was just cold turkey and to God went before him and God goes before us. You know, this Christmas time, we're looking for uh, all of us to think about somebody that God maybe has been at work in and bring them to church and bring them under the hearing of the good news of Christmas. And uh, now is the time to start to think, who is that? And to pray and ask God, you know, 
um, what can I do to help, you know, the, the next person come to embrace God's truth and experience his life? And so the widow feeds Elijah, but Elijah feeds the widow and her son, and life is brought into the situation. So trust, right? Trust is what opens the hands of God to provide. Trust is our gift back to God for all his provision to us. Trust has to be developed and cultivated. It's an ongoing issue. We never just make one decision and it's done. God is always moving us to the next level when it comes to trusting him, right? And uh, trust um, is not decided once and for all. It's a challenge all through our life. And so what is God asking you to trust him with? Pick one of these five areas, you know, and say, what is it that God is asking me to trust him more with? And go ahead and act as if you trusted God and see if he doesn't bring blessing uh, and pleasure into our lives as we take that next step and get to that next level. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we're so thankful again for the Bible, and uh, I'm thankful that you're a trustworthy God, that when you say something, we can count on it. And I think sometimes we're so used to, in the world we live in, people saying things that they don't mean, that they don't follow through on, that we just get to a place as adults where we just don't trust anybody or trust anybody's word, not even yours. And we come here and we open your word and we read about these promises that you make to us and and the challenges that you put before us on how to live by trusting you and seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we're afraid to try. We're afraid that maybe you're not going to come through. And so we just depend upon ourselves and we live these kind of anemic spiritual lives uh, that are hungry and thirsty for more. And I pray, Father, that we would uh, just... Invite your spirit to impress upon us something specific that you're asking us to just trust you a little bit more than we do so that we could just take one step and get to a next level in one of these areas. And that, Father, we would sense the pleasure that comes both to us and to you as a result of living that way and that we would want more of it and that we would live that way between now and the day you take us home. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. We're going to ask our ushers now if they'd come and wait on us for our tithes and our offerings this morning. And as we do that, uh, we're going to have uh, Dan and Chris come and uh, help us get to know Chris a little bit better.